0: and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today.
1: December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war.
0: United States of America... Was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire
1: of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All. Star Squadron.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode number 54, and I am Scott Gardner. And I am Michael Bailey. Hey, how's it going? It's hot. Yes, it is. And, uh, oh, well, we'll tell the folks what we wanted to tell them in
1: regards to fan noises in the background. Um, Normally, Scott and I like to play it pretty... Professionally, uh, or as professionally as two people who don't get paid to do what we yes. do um, <laughs> on a regular basis. Uh, we, we like we like to show the shows to sound good. I've upgraded some of my equipment. Scott upgraded some of his equipment last year. You know we're, we we strive to be second to none in the space. Re- no, wait, that's not what I wanted to talk about. But anyways, um, it is August seventh. As we record this. So it's a little under a week until you're actually hearing it, depending on if you hear it on the first day or not. And um, Atlanta, which is where I live near, has gone through a week of like 100 degree weather like everywhere else in the freaking country. (laughs) And I'm not a warm-blooded person. I don't like the heat. I like the cold. It's a bone of contention between Scott and I, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I have my fan on, because I'm in a very small room, and the airflow isn't good in here, and I apologize if you hear the fan, but uh, it's just going to happen. So hopefully it'll just be a nice, soothing hum in the background. (laughs) <laughs> well, you make me sound like the heat miser or something.
0: I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, great Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not keen on hotness myself. I like to be. Comfortable and warm, but I don't like to be overly so. And uh, yeah, it has been ungodly hot here. So yeah, as Mike says, sorry if you hear the fan in the background, but you're just going to have to live with it. <laughs> but uh, before we get into the episode proper, it uh, occurred to me that we're actually slightly overdue to give some thank yous a, a great big old shout out to a uh, longtime uh, supporter and listener to the show, Stan Johnston. Stan, Stan Johnson sponsored this episode of tales of the justice society of america so if you love it thanks stan if you hate it blame stan that's the way i'm gonna gonna put it out there but seriously though stan thank you so much for sponsoring our show
1: we appreciate it very very much no seriously stan write in and tell us how it feels to be under the bus because uh, (laughs) if you have a if you have a nice view from under there because jesus christ scott just threw you under it (laughs)
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, he knows we love him. If this sucks, blame him. Blame him. So uh where do we wanna go for well we got we wanna go ahead
1: and dive straight yeah. into the issue pretty much, don't we? Yeah, there there's <laughs> As you and I have said in the past, uh, this is not the episode for fiddle fuckery. Um, (laughs) I love that word. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm coming to love it and and touch it and call it George uh, or whatever. And we're going to dive right in with the next in the adventures of the All-Star Squadron. This is All-Star Squadron number 20, For the Dark Things Cannot Stand the Light. It was released on January 27th, 1983. It's got a cover date of April, though it's actually April 1983, because we're. It's going to be in, a, in about 10 episodes when we're actually going to have the year on the covers, because they started in December of 1983 doing that with DC. The credits. On this bad boy, a tale of the greatest heroes of world of the world called Earth 2. In the grim days of early 1942, during the Second World War, Roy Thomas, writer, Jerry Ordway, artist, John Costanza, letterer, Gene D'Angelo, colorist, and Len Ween, editor. And the cover, which is probably one of my favorite covers of this entire series, uh, I love this cover. It has a green lantern in a devastated Japanese town crying to the heavens as well there's there there's six heads above him. Uh, Robot man looks shocked. He is on the far right. Hawkman seems to be like catching a peek through the corner of his uh mask but is trying <laughs> not to look. Uh, Liberty Bell is horrified by what she sees. Doctor Fate uh, looks like someone just need him in the balls. Now he's singing. He's going, La! <laughs> Uh Wonder Woman just is turning her head and seeing the horror. And Johnny Quick looks like he's going to cry. It's a very, very cool Jerry Ordway cover. It is.
0: I, I will totally back you up as this being one of the best of the
1: entire series. The All-Stars are shocked as they believe they have witnessed the deaths of the JSA. Brainwave corrects them, saying that the jsa errors aren't dead, but the imaginary deaths they suffered at the hands of the Japanese army of Brainwave's creation is robbing them of their will to live, much like work did to me today. Liberty Bell asks Brainwave (laughs) if he is working for Hitler or Tojo, but it turns out that BW is just a plain old douchebag and is out to prove how awesome of a villain he is as witnessed last Friday when he hacked into our Lipson account and wrote all over my notes that I had written up and worked really hard on. So I don't know if he's going to do it again this week, but I hope he doesn't.
0: <laughs> the what? all-star... The what? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, one of these days I want to read a comic set in World War II where somebody accuses somebody of working for Tojo and they're like, that little dog from The
1: Wizard of Oz? <laughs> The All-Stars decide the best way to handle this problem is to leap in the JSA's collective dream world. They do so and find themselves in a Japanese city where Japanese bombers are there to greet them. Robot Man and Steel get, get right to the fighting, but soon the All-Stars are all taken out by the Japanese military. We are then treated to the origin of Brainwave, who apparently had the ability to make his thoughts come to life, an ability he perfected through years of self-training, and he kind of looks like the non-inbred version of Jesse Custer's friend from Preacher uh, that was killed by Jesse's grandmother and cousin. I don't know if you ever read Preacher. No, I'll
0: be honest with you. all I know about Preacher comes from uh, a really good episode that the guys over at um, Hey Kids Comics did that that covered yep. you know the the high points of the series. That that's pretty much my my primer for uh, for Preacher. I never read it, never really
1: had much interest to read it. I have to be honest. I think uh, not to derail us too much. I think there are stories you would really really like. And then there would be stories where you would look at me and go, why the fuck did you give this to me to read? (laughs) Um, After college, Brainwave wanted money and at first used minions to do his bidding, like Professor Elba, who fought the JSA. The battle ends and Brainwave steps forward and plants a mental command for the JSA to return to him when he called. I skipped something in those notes. No, I didn't. It's been a long day. The battle with Professor Elba ends, and Brainwave steps forward and plants a mental command for the JSA to return to him when he called there. And I'm leaving all that in so you can understand the pain of my mental anguish today. (laughs) Brainwave also mind whammyed Wonder Woman. No whammy, no whammy, no whammy. Stop! And a few days ago, the JSA came when Brainwave called. He tried to get the All-Stars under his control after Johnny Quick, you know, endangered a bunch of people all to make Robot Man to look good. But the contact was not long enough for him to control them. Over several pages, we find out where the other JSA members, full-time and on-call members alike, are before settling on Alan Scott, who is busy peeling potatoes after getting into trouble in the military. He hears of the All-Stars heading to the world's fair fairgrounds, and soon he is off as Green Lantern, but only after saying his awesome oath. Brainwave is trying to decide who to kill first when Green Lantern shows up. GL quickly finds himself in the dream world, where he does a bang-up job of killing everyone, which overloads Brainwave and causes him to drop the illusion and escape, but not before Green Lantern contemplates suicide. The all-stars in the JSA are free, but Green Lantern collapses on the floor and repeats, I am become death, the shatterer of worlds, over and over again, as Wonder Woman holds him and saying that it was all just a dream. Um, historical notes, which I will get since I forgot to pull down the book and I'm vamping for time, but I'm getting there pretty quick, so that's okay. <laughs> At some point I have to sample uh, this thing from Family Guy where every once in a while it's like, play me out. And they go, dun, 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 Like old-timey piano music. for oh, you and your damn Family Guy. <sighs> it's because I have good taste
0: and you don't, sir. I don't know, dude. I tried watching that not long ago because you go on and on and on about it so much. I finally was like, "All right, I've got to see what Mike's on about." And I tried to watch it and I'm sorry, there's something there I'm just not getting. I don't know what it is. Just just not my bag, I guess. We're going to have to we're going to have to agree to disagree, my friend.
1: All righty. Notes. The letter section of number 20 relates a uh handful of errors that sneaked into conway and thomas's five-part crisis on earth Prime, along with the incorrect calendar date in jla number 207 there's the fact that in jla 209 five all-stars are shown getting out of a cabin Times square while in the corresponding scene in the earlier all-star squadron number 14 two of those heroes showed up later or perhaps these eras weren't too bad for a 115-page story by two writers and five artists. To account for what the JSA honorary members were up to at roughly the time All-Star Comics No. 11 hit the newsstands, Ordway redrew scenes from Superman's battle with Luther not yet Lex L, for the Power Stone in Superman number 17, and Robin's rescue from a Joker-set trap in Batman No. 11, both now on view in Archives volumes, and and this is this is me adding this, the Chronicles line, and the Flash was shown in a time travel sequence sequence from All Flash Quarterly number four. Uh, though Jerry Ordway and Roy Thomas didn't involve Father Time as the early story story had, non honorary Spectre was shown fighting Kulak, his enemy from All Star number two, in a new sequence. The fourth honorary JS air had joined the army in Green Lantern number four and was shown on KP kitchen patrol duty with his pal Doiby Dickles. As an in-joke, Ordway drew Alan Scott identical to movie actor Alan Ladd. Since GL's original writer co-creator Bill Finger had revealed he once considered giving that name to the hero's alter ego as a derivation of Aladdin because GL had a magic ring. He decided against it, Finger said, because the name was too corny. As it happened, this was not long before Ladd became a star, following his breakthrough role in 1942's This Gun for Hire, and avoided an awkward situation. <laughs> Details of Brainwave's origins from All Star number 15 are related in a thought flashback. As wait, 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 there's different types of flashbacks. <laughs> I, guess, I guess there would be a difference between a thought flashback and a voiced flashback, but still, it's it's a non flashback, a nom flashback. <laughs> an acid trip flashback. <laughs> Brainwave's thought narrative reveals that he was behind Dr. Elba's plot to drive men insane in All-Star No. 8. This retroactive continuity with a vengeance as Elba seems definitely self-employed in the 1941 comic, even though Brainwave says he'd manipulated him subconsciously. Right after Elba's suicide, seen in a flashback in Squadron Number 20, Brainwave introduced himself to the JSAers and his civilian identity as... Dr. Henry King. In this issue, Jerry Ordway gave Luther red hair even though he'd been bald in the 1942 stories because it had been established in his appearances in E. Nelson Bridwell's 1970s Mr. and Mrs. Superman series that Earth's 2 Luther had always had the red hair he sported in Action Comics number 23. His baldness in Golden Age comics is presumably the result of garbled transmission between Earth 2 and Earth Prime. (laughs) I am become death, the shatterer of worlds. The mushroom cloud over Hiroshima, Japan, on August 6, 1945, was the first use in warfare of a nuclear weapon. Green Lantern's power ring matched the A-bomb's fury three and a half years earlier in his brainwave-induced dream sequence in All-Star number 20. He was mentally devastated by the experience. The quote he utters is the same that Manhattan Project chief scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer, played in the movie Fat Man and Little Boy by Barkley from Star Trek The Next Generation, who is the whiniest character on that series? Yes. Uh, Dwayne Schultz, is that his yes, name? Yes. I was trying to think of it. Yeah, I thought he was that also was. also Howling Mad Murdoch on yeah. the team. It's just like, wow, that guy's got range. Um, uh, that was the same that Oppenheimer would voice at the first atomic test in July 1945, a line from India's ep- ancient epic, the... <laughs> Get ready, folks. Mahabharata? Yeah, that's pretty good. In the poem therein known as the Gita, which I just butchered as well. <laughs> <Roy> T- <laughs> I'm a god of Levita, honey. <laughs> Roy Thomas has since felt he dropped the ball by not referring back to GL's torment and later issues and using it as a motivation for Alan Scott to be reluctant to wield his rings to his rings full power. Mm. And that is it for the, uh, the historical notes on this one. Scott, what do you got? Oh my goodness. I don't have a
0: whole lot on this one. Although as I flipped through the issue, um, as you were synopsizing, a few more things came to me, one of which I've got to address immediately, even though it's completely out of order of my usually in-order notes. How in the hell is it that uh, Alan Scott is a lowly, what is he, private first class, and Doyby Dickles is a sergeant? How the hell does that work?
1: I, mean, I think Doebby had been in the military before, and oh, when he rejoined,
0: okay. uh, that actually makes sense
1: because okay. Doebby's older than him, so right. it makes sense that maybe when he was a younger man, he had been in World War One. That's a, okay. I, I will completely buy that explanation. Actually. I, I don't know I that for sure, that. but I but I seem to remember reading that. So I could, be, but it could be one of those things. And you probably have the same thing where you read so many freaking comics. Right books on comics where you think you read something, but it turns out that, no, you're just making the shit up. Sometimes I just make <laughs> shit up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I had totally meant to read the uh, Superman and Batman stories that were referenced in this book. But sadly, my uh, Superman, what are they called? Chronicles? Mm-hmm and and the one before the one that reprints this story and I don't <laughs> have Superman number 252 is which is the other place it's been reprinted I so I don't have either so since I didn't have the Superman one I didn't bother to read the Batman and Robin one cuz it didn't look all that exciting anyway actually my biggest note for this uh time around for this episode is something that I feel horrible that I it was tickling the back of my brain last episode, and I really meant to to ask you about it and throw it out there, because I thought I remembered it correctly, but I wasn't exactly sure. And then we got talking, and I got sidetracked, and it never came up. But anyway, I actually did my homework on this subject, and it turns out I did remember something correctly. Superman made his uh, first live appearance ever, you know, where he was portrayed yeah. by an actor at the nineteen thirty nine world's fair you know we were talking all about the world's fair last issue it was uh, the guy's name was ray middleton he was the first actor to portray superman in public uh... they had a superman day which was uh, july third nineteen forty at the new york world's fair and superman was featured at the uh, world of tomorrow exhibit as the man of tomorrow where ray middleton donned the costume and served as the first actor to portray superman in public uh, interestingly the uh, costume had superman written over the chest shield emblem it was like right over top of the this was not the like p- pentagonal is that how you say that pentagonal yeah, sh- it, that we it know we today yeah. this was like an upside down triangle so at the very top of the triangle above the s it was actually on there it said superman almost like a like the uh halloween
1: costumes of like when I was a kid, you know, in the seventies, yeah. <laughs> you know, early eighties, how they the, used the to Batman have. costume yeah. that had Batman written on the chest and the symbol on the on the mask on the mask, yeah. And also, he had the uh, his original lace up style
0: boots uh, with this outfit. It Actually, looks really dynamic. And there's a great a uh, great article and great pictures that you can see on the uh, Superman homepage for this stuff, which is where I'm
1: getting all this information. There's uh, uh, there's I'm another sorry. little known fact that there was a comment board at the world's fair and like three pages of it was devoted to people picking apart the costume and saying how he didn't really look like Superman, how the (laughs) costume sucked, (laughs) how the boots weren't right. It's, I mean, I really wish they would have saved those, but, um, I only say that because they recently revealed the, uh, the new Superman costume, um, which I'm sure we will. We may, are we discussing that on Comics Monthly Monday this month? Or? And if you want,
0: I, okay. I I hadn't occurred to me, but that might be something for us to to talk about briefly. <laughs> yes, um, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> let's see the rest of this about the the live Superman. It says a live Superman radio broadcast was done from the fairgrounds. DC Comics in association with Macy's sponsored the event, and the admission price for that day was reduced from 50 cents to a dime for children. Notably, Max Gaines and Harry Donenfeld were among those who attended. DC also published a special edition World's Fair Comics uh, for sale exclusively at the fair, a 15-cent, 96-page issue. Man, comics have changed a lot over the years. And if I am... Oh, go ahead, uh I'm sorry. Uh, well, Uh This boasted Superman on the front cover, accompanied by Batman and Robin, standing in front of the famous Trilon and Perisphere. And this became eventually World's Finest, didn't it?
1: Yes. And if I'm correct, I'm trying to remember John Wilson's excellent podcast, Golden Age Superman. They took the unsold copies and slapped a $0.25 cent sticker on them and released them to standard newsstands. Hmm. uh. uh a few months later. Hmm. I'm thinking that's how it worked. I could be wrong. John will write in and tell us. I, I know he will. So. Oh, does he listen to this, does he? Oh, yeah. He's wrote in before, Scott. Ah, okay. <laughs> Remember, he, he gave us that, that review of the Monocle story in Hawkman, and we played it on the show. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving right along. Da, da, uh, da, da, let's see. Da, da.
0: I completely agree with you on the cover. I think I said that already. I like the opening splash as well. Although mm-hmm. the color seems a little muted for some reason, but maybe that's my copy. I'm not sure, but uh, I really do like the art here. It looks. Uh, it's really fantastic in this issue. And
1: there's no background to it too, which makes the characters more dynamic because the color of their costumes gonna really pop off the page. Right.
0: Let's see what I've got here real quick. Page nine. Is that really where my first notes start? I guess so. Page nine. All right. You know, so the, all the, uh, all stars, you know, they, uh, agreed to Brainwave's plan to bring them in and see if they, they fare any better in this dream world than the jsa did, which they don't. They all immediately get struck down within their dream worlds. Turn to page nine, the first panel there, is now the all-stars have been added to where the jsa are. It sure is handy that Brainwave had all these cots available for everybody, you know? <laughs> he just had happened to have all these extra beds and
1: machines laying around. For it looks like he just added more action figures to his collection, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, to be honest, if they released this as an action figure line, I'd even buy the the, the Johnny Thunder in his uh, sailor uniform. There was a. Uh, a- I'm not sure if
0: they were just... I think they were Justice Society figures, like uh, like Golden Age Justice Society figures line. I'm not sure who all was in it, though, because the one I saw most of the time was Hawkman.
1: Well, there, was, there, there have been several different iterations of that. Uh, one of the first was had three figures that had Wonder Woman, The Flash, and Green Lantern. Uh, Alan Scott and Jay Garrick, which is kind of cool when you think about it, because if you're going to start an All-Star Squadron collection, that's what you want, because they were all hanging out uh, in that first, uh, that Zero issue and in the first annual. A little later, they did a line that had Power Girl and Wildcat in it, uh, Starman, I think, was in the same line as the, the first ones, now that I'm remembering. Because I have the Starman, I have the Flash, and I have the Wonder Woman. And Starman's energy rod actually glows when you put it in his hand. Take that. Yeah, my wife is now laughing like a, a, like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> and I just got the finger. So, <laughs>
0: um, I like the last panel of uh, page 13 here, where Superman's Trying to jump, and he says, "I've lost my super strength." And he's doing like little rabbit hops, and I can just hear the sound boing, effect: boing boing, 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 as he's bouncing
1: along. Dun 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 dun
0: doink, <laughs> boing, doink, doink. <laughs> I have never ever cared for the way that uh Joker is is drawn here at the first panel on page fourteen. You it's know, much I the don't... same way that uh, what's his name, Marshall Rogers, draws the Joker uh, these days too, and I don't really care for that well, much. Well,
1: not these days. Cause well, he's dead, yeah, but...
0: when when you know, in the last few years when he because he did a, a mini series.
1: Yeah, it's he did a, a kind detective
0: of a... or something like that, and he drew Joker looking like that, and I didn't care for it in that either.
1: Well, that was the sequel to his and Steve Englehart's run on Detective, which is an excellent run of Batman stories. mm mm-hmm. um, I actually liked that Joker. I think the main problem with this Joker is the coloring, at least in my copy, of his mouth is all fakakta. Mm-hmm it doesn't look good at all so it really it, it it's not as dynamic and 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 robin's a little chubby in the face uh, yeah batman looks pretty cool though ordway always had a really good sense of batman though
0: yeah i like his batman i like his superman in this i, I really wish the superman he was drawing in this title had stuck around when he eventually drew Superman in Adventures of Superman, because I never really cared for his Adventures of Superman style Superman, but I like his his take on Superman in this. Yeah, or no, it's on page 21, fourth panel, where uh, Brainwave's machine shorts out and all that, and it starts a fire, and then the, the uh, narration says... Yet as his penthouse sprinkler system began to douse the raging flames, I'm just thinking, did they really have sprinkler systems in 1942? I I guess it's possible, but I wouldn't have... I would have thought that those were a fairly modern thing, you know? I mean, like in the latter half of the 20th century. I wouldn't... I, I wasn't aware that they had sprinklers in the 40s, but... I had meant to research that, but... You know, it just didn't happen. Um... In the letters page here, there was something I thought was interesting, where Roy Thomas answered one of the letter writers here. Let's see. It was Anthony, somebody, somebody. It was an explanation as far as the time thing. Here it is. It says, As for the time paradox you mentioned, it seemed obvious to us, though we've never delved deeply into the matter, that some imperfection or side effect of the time machine Degaton stole from Professor C causes all memory of his attempts at world conquest to be shoved onto the back burner of his mind, but that the right circumstances, such as the series of nightmares culminating in issue 14 of this title, can prod him into remembrance even if everyone else is forgotten. That's a possible explanation for how he's able to remember things even though i still maintain that it's not a matter of everybody forgetting what happened it's a matter of the events now never really happened but i like this idea that because he's the one that actually did the time traveling you know what roy thomas is you know putting forward here that the machine itself somehow you know places a a memory off in some distant recess of his mind that can be accessed later on through a nightmare or whatever it's a it's an interesting idea it's you know it's it's a creative idea and at least it's some sort of little no prize attempt to explain an otherwise pretty yeah. you know annoying and silly concept but uh i like that and you know because that came up last time um I'm trying to remember who it was. Somebody wrote in saying, you know, that they agreed that that drives them a little bit crazy, too, about the, the per-degaton stories like that. But let's see. Really, my last note on this, besides the meanwhile column, which I'm, I'm sure we'll go over when we look at ads and things that are in here. Um, you know, I wasn't all that crazy about about this issue. I wasn't really all that crazy about this particular story in general, to be honest with you. I love these two issues, for what they set up and what's coming out of them much more than I like the actual story that that was you know, that ran between the two issues. It was it was okay. It was fun and everything. But this one here, rereading it, it's very, very heavy handed at the very end of it. You know, with the whole thing with you know the the analog between, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima and Green Lantern, you know, nuking Japan in his mind and all that. It was I don't know. We already got a little bit of that in the crisis on, um, or what was it? Crisis times five. The yeah. Hell is the name of that story. Crisis on Earth Prime story. Yes, Crisis on Earth Prime. You know where they they kept showing FDR having doubts about using the bomb and all that. It you know it just it bugs me a little bit. So, but I think we discussed that before, so it doesn't need to be. You know we don't need to beat that point too much, but it, it it just it does seem very heavy-handed in this particular story. I think at the very end of it, but I enjoyed it, and I agree with Roy Thomas that it, it's a shame that he didn't pick up that thread and run with it. That you know afterwards, GL would be very hesitant to use his full power again and all that it would explain a lot why he's always getting his ass kicked. I mean, here's a guy that should be you know, one of the most powerful members of the team, and sometimes he is and sometimes he isn't, but it seems like he gets knocked around an awful lot for a guy with a magic ring, you know, that should be able to do most anything. And I think that that would have been a great way of explaining why he wasn't as powerful as you think he he ought to be because he was he was reigning himself in after this trauma he had suffered
1: in the dream world. James Robinson will... will explore that a little bit in uh golden age oh really yes I, oh, okay
0: i'd forgotten that all right cool i, I can't wait to reread that again because it's been a long time since i've read that and every time i have read it i've really really enjoyed it so i look forward when we get to that Cool. That's pretty much all I got on this. I love the art. I love the use of all these great characters. You know, many of whom I, I really, really like. And you know, I just, I, I wish the story had been a little bit more to my liking. Was the only thing. It's not bad. It's just, eh. I like where we're going. Um, I actually have read ahead a little bit. I've, I've read into the next story arc, and I really like where that one goes. So mm-hmm. I'll be that much more excited when we get on to, to that story because I just dig that one better. But this one was all right. What do you, what do you got on this one?
1: Well, uh, just to kind of add to something you were talking about before, the world's first recognizable sprinkler system mm-hmm. was installed in the Theater Royale, Drury Lane, in the United Kingdom. <laughs> Drury. <laughs> Andrew Leyland is laughing right now. Um, in the United Kingdom in 1812. Holy shit, really? Uh, the first automatic. They had uh, water in 1812? <laughs> The, the first automatic sprinkler system was patented by Philip W Pratt in 1872 and Henry S Parmalee of New Haven Connecti-
0: Connecticut
1: uh, <laughs> is considered to be the inventor of the first automatic sprinkler head so it goes back a couple hundred years wow or almost well almost 200 years for the the actual thing they weren't automatic at first and now they're uh, very sophisticated, but I'm sure they just kind of play on the same theories that everyone else had. Um, I actually liked this issue a lot better than the previous one. And and that's, uh, and that's not me saying I hated the previous one. It's just, I enjoyed this one better. We kind of cover the same ground just with the all stars fighting instead of the JSA But there's a couple right. things about this issue that, that make it more worthwhile to me. Uh, the first being on page four. I love the flashback panel showing what happened to all of the JSAs when they were killed, all stemming from Brainiac's mind. It's a really neat art effect as it kind of rainbows across the uh, the top of the page. The fight uh, that the All Stars have with the Japanese army is actually. Um, Moving to a certain extent, especially Firebrand, because we actually see blood coming out of her mouth on page 7, which is not something you really saw all that often at this point. Uh, Bottom of page 8, I love the shot of Liberty Bell lying on the ground in the reflection of Brainwave's glasses. Yeah. It just looks great. The, um... (laughs) Page nine, and I kind of alluded this to this in my notes. The young brainwave is basically sitting on a creek bed with a fishing pole. He's wearing nothing but overalls, and he's reading a book, and he's this blonde-haired kid. I can't remember the character's name, but as I was saying before, in Preacher, when they really go into Jesse Custer's history, he had a friend, a friend growing up in the in, in backwoods wherever. Uh, that was that only had one eye. It's not like ass was, face or something like that. No, that Arseface is a different character. Oh, okay. Um, but this, it was a friend of his from across the way, and it was getting too late one night, and he stayed in the barn and witnessed. Uh, one of the workers at the farm. I don't know. I I, I never got if it was actually a relation of Jesse's or not, but basically this guy's fucking a chicken. And, uh, he goes after finishing with the chicken, he goes to urinate and ends up pissing on Jesse's friend and he catches him. And he's like, you were spying on me. And, uh, they kill him. (laughs) It's rather dark, but he kind of looks like that, except he's got two eyes. The uh, <laughs> That's not a children's title, pretty much, is what you're saying. No, not at all. Page 10, the middle panel. I kept rooting for Dr. Elba to just plunge the needle into Johnny Thunder's neck and just put that poor bastard out of his misery. I was kind of hoping he'd forgotten to get the air bubble out of yeah. <laughs> that hypodermic
0: before he jabbed it into his neck.
1: The Superman-Batman scenes on page 13 and 14 are great. Mm-hmm. I think they're one of the main reasons I like this title so much because it's the first time we really get to see Ordway kind of opening up on Superman, and thankfully, it will not be the last. Cause starting next month, Superman's in the book uh, for a little bit there. Mm-hmm. So excited for that. The Batman, I have to agree with you, Joker looks a little off, but Batman at the bottom of the, of the page looks pretty cool too. Yeah. The... Um... <laughs> It is kind of funny that Alan Scott is peeling potatoes and basically convinces Doibee to do it for him and then says, just kidding, and I don't think he was kidding. I don't think he was kidding at all. The scenes of Green Lantern just freaking losing his shit and obliterating everybody... is powerful not only in terms of the guilt he feels, but in the feedback that it causes brainwave. I mean, this really messes with brainwaves shit, for lack of a better term. And on page 22, he's <laughs> he's seriously considering killing himself and destroying the ring so that no one will have this power. And I'm like, oh my god. This is the first time we've really ever seen... Like, character development for Alan Scott in this title, and the first time out, he thinks off at himself. Right. Uh, but it leads to that beautiful panel on the, on the bottom of page 23 where you have the shadows of the JSA members and the All-Stars against uh, Green Lantern being held by Wonder Woman. And she's saying it it was all just a dream, and it's just this really kind of creepy way to end this story. It's like suddenly, suddenly, this story got real. It's like you know the, the the JSA members getting killed last issue, and the All Stars getting killed at the beginning of this issue was real even though it was a dream, but it's not as hard-hitting as the emotional turmoil Alan Scott is going through after he believes that he obliterated a country. Right. Uh, just, just a really solid way to end the story, in my opinion. I liked it. I liked it a lot, as a matter of fact. I like the next story even better. But. Oh, Yeah. Uh, this one was a good way for it's. It's kind of like a, it's almost like a bold new era in All Star Squadron. Yeah, definitely, definitely,
0: because it, it feels like you know, like the uh, the game really gets turned up. You know, starting with the the next story arc, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Mike chokes to death. <laughs> the um, the ads this time out were really kind of boring. Yeah, there was
0: really nothing I, I thought of consequence in the in the issue besides the story, other than the Meanwhile column. But most of this stuff in the Meanwhile column will probably come up in uh, elsewhere in the DC multiverse anyway. But I always liked this particular Meanwhile column because it was the one that showed uh, Brooke Shields sitting reading a, a recent issue of Superman, which I always got a kick out of.
1: There's also a note there because this was another great thing about Meanwhile, as we discussed a couple episodes ago, that giordano would use it as a kind of like hey this is what's coming up and it says continued and special for 1983 checklist number oh confirmed and confirmed and special for 1983 checklist number one frank miller's ronin first issue on sale april 48 pages full color no ads boring as hell wait that wasn't there i've never read that actually i think chris has read it but i've never kind of leafed through it i'm not a fan uh, Green Arrow miniseries by Mike W. Barr and Trevor Von Eden. First issue on sale 24th, uh, February 24th. Uh, four issues on in, in all. I have that. I've never read it. And the main reason I've never read it is because Green Arrow was a backup feature in Detective around this time. Mm-hmm. And that was a horrible strip. It well, was I basically. I'm Green Arrow and I'm a liberal. And I'm going right. to tell you that I'm a liberal. And it was just. It was very. It was nothing. Nothing against Joey Cavalieri as a writer because he would write things later that I would like, and he would definitely edit things later that I liked, including uh, he was kind of behind the whole Marvel twenty ninety nine line. Uh, but yeah, not not my favorite works of his. Yeah, I don't
0: remember a Green Arrow miniseries before Longbow Hunters. So which one is this? It's a
1: four issue miniseries from uh, nineteen eighty three. It's just Green Arrow. Huh. I don't remember I, that. Picked it up in a 50-cent box years ago. Hmm. DC Comics Presents Annual by Elliot S. Magan, Alex Toth, and Terry Austin. I don't remember that. I don't remember that either. I wonder if that actually came to be. Uh, Batman Annual by Mike W. Barr and Michael Golden on sale this summer. That's not an annual, though. That would come out the next year as a special. special. Batman special. With The Wrath. Yep. Uh, A particular favorite of our friend Andrew Leyland, who covered that on... uh, Hey Kids Comics, uh, which actually led me to go into eBay that night and buy it so that I would have it. Um, what would you get it for, if you don't mind my asking? Like 3 bucks. Damn, that's great. That's a go good it. deal. Yeah, it was a good deal. I got it with a bunch of other stuff so I could get cheap shipping. Um, because it was one of those eBay people that if you buy one thing, the shipping is just the one fee. So I figured I'd pick up a couple other things that were inexpensive just to make it worth my while. Um, Adam miniseries. Oh, uh, apparently I found this out recently about that Batman special. They did a sequel in Batman Confidential of that.
0: Yeah, I'm missing the very last issue, but I was reading it and it was actually pretty good. But I'm missing the very last issue, so I don't know how the story resolved. Damn
1: it! And, and uh, conveniently, they packaged the special and the the storyline in one trade paperback.
0: Oh wow! So that,
1: so that one actually got reprinted. Uh, I told Andrew Leyland about it, and he's he doesn't want to read it because he loves the special so much. He doesn't want to be sullen. He's worried that it's going to suck. See, if- I was a little bit worried about that, too, because I wasn't sure how they were going to do a
0: sequel to that story. But, it, it, you know, I don't remember a whole lot of the details. Um, but I, I remember thinking, well, you know, this is going in an interesting place because... You know, spoiler. It's not the wrath. It's basically it's it's the wrath's equivalent of Nightwing taking the wrath's place.
1: Oh, okay, that's and, interesting. Uh,
0: yeah, it was. It was very interesting because it, it basically was like you know, if you can get over that fact of you know, it's bringing in a character that was not in the original story, and you embrace it more as well. If Batman has Robin, the Ray, you know, the wrath must have had something you know, a, a Robin equivalent type of thing. Then it it makes a certain amount of sense, I thought. And, you know, I was enjoying it from from that angle. But as I say, I I missed the last issue, so I still have no idea how the story resolved.
1: Uh, We've got an Atom miniseries, The Sword of the Atom, by Jan Strand and Gil Kane. I have that and have never read it.
0: Yeah, me either.
1: And JLA Avengers, team-up by Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, and George Perez. Man, I wish that had happened. I really wish that that had happened. It's why I have to get the Absolute Edition of JLA Avengers because they print all of Perez's pages in the back, hmm. and I'd like to see all of those. I, I've they like showed a couple in Wizard years ago because apparently Rob Weifeld bought all of those pages.
0: Well, there's there's issues of um, oh what was the name of that series? David Anthony Crafts... Comics, comics Interview. Comics Interview. That yeah that there was a special JLA. Avengers
1: issue of that that showed all the pages that had been done up to that point. I may have that. I have a bunch of those that my friend Chuck Sheffy gave me years ago. So. Yeah. that was a good fanzine back in the day. I liked that one a lot. Yeah, and, and 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 it's the only thing of David Anthony Kraft that I really like because I haven't read a single comic book story that he wrote that I cared for at all. Oh, really? He wrote a bunch of fill in Captain America stories between The Burn and uh, J.M. DeMatteis run mm-hmm. that were just awful. <laughs> there is a cool Omega Men ad, even though I don't give a crap about the Omega Men. It's a it's a subscription offer uh, that has uh, the cover and on top of it a memo that says, to Marv Wolfman from, from Dick Giordano. Subject, key points on the Omega Men. We can't show the impact of offset printing on quality paper in a standard comic book. Too bad. The characters' proven appeal earned them an ongoing uh, book. It's an exciting struggle more than impersonal superheroes and battles. What the hell does that mean?
0: <laughs> Available only
1: in limited quantities at specialty stores, so it may be difficult to find. Uh, no. Because <laughs> I got all of mine out of like a dollar box. Um, and here's a great offer. 12 issues for the price of 10 and readers who subscribe by January 15th will receive an issue number one, a sure collector's <laughs> item. Because that's the kind of internal memo that, uh, <laughs> that they would write. Special deal just for morons. Three issues for the price of 14.
0: <laughs> that issue uh, I was trying to think of, of uh, David Anthony Kraft's comic interview, it was a special edition. It was uh, number six. It says First Look JLA Avengers in the cover of it. Is uh, a semi-classic picture. You know, if it, it was, I'm pretty sure it was. This was the first time it was ever shown. But I remember when the actual um, JLA Avengers finally got produced, like 30 years later, or mm-hmm. 25 years later, whatever. That this uh, picture started to resurface quite a bit. But it's a Perez picture of the Avengers on one side. Oh yeah, and the JLA on the other, and you've got Superman and Thor about to go head to head with each other. That was the cover of this, and it did show um, all of the pages that had been completed up to that point. It was some nice stuff. It was really I, I was
1: suddenly the Kool Aid Man there for a second. Oh yeah, oh yeah, busting through the wall, and that's really that's the most exciting part of the of the 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 ads in this are pretty pretty standard and uh, repeated from previous. Uh, Previous uh, issues that we've covered. So there's really no point in going to, through them. But, unless you had anything else to say about that meanwhile column. Negative. We can go but, <laughs> we are going to hop into the time machine. Yes. Set the flux capacitor to cover date April 1983. Which is a lot harder than you might think, in all <laughs> honesty. And I'm going to send Scott the link. Oh,
0: I've got it! I've got it already pulled up.
1: I I'm told sending you man, the I'm link. On, anyways, I'm on
0: my game tonight. I, I got my I got my act together,
1: and well, I start us off then and, and tell us what you like.
0: Well, you know, last time I I, I feel like I may have played the uh, the Gil Kane apologist, but this time around I gotta take the other side because this uh, cover on Adventure Comics number four ninety eight with the Legion of Superheroes it is ugly. It's, uh, usually I, I dig Gil Kane pretty well, but I do not like this one. It's got Super, or excuse me, not Superboy, Sunboy, rather, on one side, facing off with a bunch of people pointing guns at him, and then on the other side, it's got one of my least favorite superheroes of all time, Bouncing Boy,
1: looking I, like uh, I going to zap him. I got that best of dc number 35 and a lot of yeah blue ribbon digests uh, about a year or so ago i got like 11 of them for 20 bucks with shipping so that was a those are starting to get pricey for some reason yeah i like the cover on that one too there is a badass howard shaken blackhawk cover Mm-hmm. oh man did you like that mini series that he did I re- I got to be honest, I really don't remember it. I remember buying it
0: because it was Howard Chakin and uh, it was not long after Chakin had done that Shadow mini series that I liked so much, so I picked it up. I don't remember n- you know disliking it, but I can't I honestly can't remember a
1: damn thing about it. Uh, that DC Comics Presents number 56 covers decent. The inside is a really kind of boring story. Uh, which I was kind of disappointed in because it's Superman of Earth One and Power Girl teaming up. Yeah, and there and it seemed like there was a lot of possibilities there, but if I'm remembering this correctly, they end up going to like this other world and fighting a warlord, and it's really kind of boring. So, boring. However, I love
0: the Pat Broderick cover of, mm-hmm. Fury of *Firestorm* number eleven, where the two hyenas are coming after him. That's a great cover. Yes. Yes, it is. I like
1: that one a lot. The uh, Justice League of America has a great cover, the 213. Batman looks particularly badass on that. We're nearing the end of him being a Justice League member in this time period. That's right, yeah, because he's going to strike out and
0: uh, form Batman and the Outsiders, which I, you know, one of these days I've got to try to track down the, the whole run of that because everything I've ever read of that I enjoyed a lot, but I've got very few issues. I have, like, Maybe like the first four, and then after that, it's like you know two or three issues from the rest of the entire series. I just didn't keep up with it, and I regret that I did not. I love how Superman looks on the cover of Superman three eighty two, but he's the only thing I like on that cover. Yeah, course, I'm not. A, it's freaky looking. Yeah,
1: the Batman issue that has a cover by, of course, Ed Hannigan. Uh, Really cool, looking like the glass is shattered on the camera as Killer Croc fires. That's a good issue. Holy Uh, crap, Kurt Swan drew that issue? It's a good issue story-wise. Swan draws a great Robin. Hmm. I've never been really happy with his Batman, but it's some of the better, but for for being something I didn't think I was going to like, it was kind of like getting to that new Teen Titans issue that he drew, like, number number five. So you get, like, four issues of this beautiful Perez art. And it's not that I'm mocking Kurt Swan, so please don't think that. But, you know, it's like going to your favorite restaurant and it's just not as good as the last time you went. And, uh because swan just wasn't geared for those characters but the story is actually pretty good it continues the whole killer croc storyline uh and his rise as a batman villain and i'm telling you folks killer croc as originally conceived is so much more awesome than this hulk like creature that they have walking around now yeah i'm not kidding these are great batman issues Uh, Tara joins New Teen Titans this month. Yeah, it's a good cover, too. I
0: like that one. I like the uh, Get Off Me, You Crazy Bitch cover on uh, Saga the Swamp Thing number 12. (laughs) That's crazy, chucking her off of a dam. That's pretty cool. And I've always been a sucker for this cover on uh, Daring New Adventures of Supergirl number 6. That's just really cool where she's fighting a giant robot at the uh, O'Hare airport. That's just cool.
1: Really cool Keith Pollard Green Lantern cover too. Yeah, that one even though the story is boring as shit.
0: That would make a nice, uh, you know, you cut the girl out of the background, and that'd make like a nice T-shirt or poster mm-hmm. or something. That's actually really cool. I like that. The, the I, uh, oh,
1: go ahead. The i Vampire cover on House of Mystery is pretty cool too. Got a Western style Legion of Superheroes cover. You know,
0: I've only ever had one letter published in a comic book ever and it was pointing out a mistake in who's who where they had listed the uh first appearance of amethyst as i think it was like legion of superheroes 296 or something like that and i had had wrote in to correct them that it was actually this issue number 298
1: i can look at that right now if i really want to (laughs) and that's my claim to fame with with letters published in comics (laughs) I had about eight or nine published in 1999 and 2000 in a couple different books. So if we get to those, I will point those out. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to know which issues those are. Uh, love. Love the action comics. Yeah. cover, And that is a really good issue, too. This is the issue where Lois Lane and Superman break up and Vandal Savage comes back as a as a major villain. I was Superman. just going to
0: ask if this was the start of the of the Vandal Savage stuff cuz I yep. was thinking
1: it it might have been. That's cool. It was and it's a really good issue too cuz them breaking up is actually kind of heartbreaking to me. Uh it, it really is because Wolfman actually had a really good reason behind it. That basically he never had time for her. And that Superman never had time for Lois Lane, so you can't blame her. Uh, Some of the stuff done later was a little too melodramatic, but this was a big deal from what I understand. Uh, I mean, and it even announces it right on the cover that, uh, what does it say? Beginning an exciting new era in the life of Superman. But it's a really great Ed Hannigan cover.
0: Well, isn't that what we talked about before? This was the start of that storyline where where Superman kind of drove her into the arms of Captain Strong, and and she ended up, you know, having his illegitimate baby and all that. <laughs> Didn't and that we talked about that before in an episode? I think I'm, I'm sure we did. Uh, Raven, <laughs> Raven the Bull one ninety seven. Yep. we need to. We, I'm noticing there's some stuff we definitely need to cover uh, as far as Earth Two stories here.
1: That that is a. Uh... What I love about that cover, one, it's a great story because it shows how the Earth 2 Batman and Catwoman hooked up. But the cover has them embracing while the Scarecrow looms above them, but their capes are flourishing so it looks like a heart. Yeah. It's a really nice effect. Uh, Who did the cover here? Jim Jim Aparo. Jim Aparo. The interior, though, is done by Joe Staton and it's some yeah. really nice artwork. So, yeah. some, this was reprinted in the greatest Batman stories ever told from 88, uh, which is the first place I read it, actually.
0: I like the uh, Captain Carrot cover here, where it's <laughs> aping the, the style of covers that were done by Perez.
1: Yes, for the it's so uh, awesome. Yeah, Crisis yeah. on Earth Prime story, that's cool. And Roy Thomas wrote that title. Uh, Detective has a great cover of Croc coming out of the waters in the sewer about to beat the piss out of Batman. (laughs) And it was a good fight, too. It it really was. That was a good issue, which uh, I will be covering on something. Which, uh, stay tuned to Comics Monthly Monday uh, this month, folks, because I have an exciting announcement that I've already announced one other place, but you may not have heard it. So, going to announce it there. Cool. Cool. Uh, Jonah Hex is a pretty dynamic Ross Andrew cover. Uh, I
0: don't, I don't care for that one. I have to be really? honest with you. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not I all that like crazy it. about that cover.
1: Okay, New Adventures of Superboy number forty. We covered the, I covered this on an issue of Back to the ben, Episode of Back to the Bins. I like uh, this cover. It's a great cover, and in it, it has one of the most awesome moments ever for Superboy. Where some guy, Clark Kent, is walking onto the school field and some guy's mouthing off about his mom and he knocks him on his ass. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I've had enough out of you. (laughs) It's just neat to see, you know, Superboy basically having enough. I mean, Clark Kent having enough. And as a young Clark Kent, it makes more sense that he would just knock somebody on his ass because he's young and kind of hot-headed. So he's still learning, but it was just a great moment. Just a oh god, it was so awesome.
0: Man, Ed Hannigan drew like everything again this month because he it's... did this cover of Wonder Woman 302 as well. That's that's actually a nice cover. I like that.
1: I really like the cover to World's Finest two ninety of Batman kind of stalked on the top of a building, and you have like the Ed Hannigan drawing a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Superman in a photograph. Yeah. Once again, the story sucks. Where Strikes Stalagron? <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> it involves the giant worms under the earth and wooden creatures and Bat Bruce Wayne getting a shiatsu massage. And it's just. Uh, I really want to like World's Finest from this era. And of the two issues that I've read, I have been horribly, horribly disappointed. The problem with World's Finest
0: to me is it's one of those books that I look at and go, wow, how did this book run for as many issues and as many years as it did when all of the stories are completely forgettable? You know, I mean, I have quite a collection of World's Finest comics. I've read almost all of them. And I can't tell you shit that goes on in any of them. I, I just I can't. I, they're completely forgettable stories.
1: Well, except that one that we covered on Back to the Bins That was pretty cool. The origin of the Superman Batman team.
0: That's true. I mean, well, now that I yeah, now that I say that, yeah, there there was one that's always stood up. Probably just because it was one of the when I first started collecting comics, you know. As everyone does, you know when you first start out, you don't have as many in the in the beginning. So you read the the early ones that you've got over and over again, you know. And I had the one; it was uh, I'm pretty sure Rich Buckler drew it, and it was coverless. So uh, what I remember as the cover was actually the opening splash, but it was Batman, and he'd been buried alive. Ooh! And the story was where Superman and Robin through the course of the story are growing more and more desperate to find him, to a point to where when Superman realizing you know, is realizing that his friend is, you know, running out of air and running out of time, really starts becoming more Batman like and really throttling people like, you know, where's my friend? And you know, really getting, you know, desperate to find him. In the meantime, it was interspersed with scenes of Batman Trying to use his brain to figure a way out of this death trap, you know he was literally buried alive. How is he going to get out of it and it was a really good issue that that one i 've always remembered, but you know again it was the, the the thing about
1: go ahead i'm sorry I was just
0: going to say just the rare exception you know
1: the thing about world 's finest and, and and you and I disagree are going to disagree on part of this statement, but I think you 'll agree with the overall of what I'm, uh, what I'm saying, is I, I look at World's Finest much like I look at The Punisher. I'm not a really big fan of The Punisher having an ongoing series because I think after a while it becomes very repetitive. I feel the same way about Superman and Batman stories. When you have them together month after month, you have to think of reasons to get them together. Right, and the well can run dry pretty freaking quick. When they brought back the concept with Superman Batman, uh Jeff Loeb countered that by just having Michael Bay blockbuster comic book stories. Mm-hmm. You know, where it was huge and Superman and Batman had to be together. You know, the first one was the the fall of Luth of President Luther. Right. And then you had that really cool storyline involving the uh legion of supervillains mucking with time. That was great. I that liked was a that great one. story. And then you had the Supergirl one, which I really liked. And you had, you know, the, his answer to the Ultimates and all of that. Really good, exciting stories. But then after he left, I think the writers that came on after him really lost sight of it. The, the the There's a few exceptions, most notably the three-issue storyline going on now, which has been just freaking awesome. I'm really glad that that book's going on on a high note. But to me, if you're going to team those two characters up, it should be a big deal. So once a year, having a six-issue, world's finest, whatever subtitle you want to put under that, you know, world's finest apocalypse or something like that. <laughs> um, I think that works better because then it's special. Then you look forward to it. If you have it on a monthly basis, them teaming up isn't special anymore. Right. It's not unique. It's not, and it can get very boring. And it's and it's really nothing against the writers that have written the two issues that I've kind of gone through because Doug Mensch is a great writer. I love his stuff, but this. The issue of world's finest from this from this page is just it's just awful. It makes me sad. <laughs> well, don't be sad because we got letters. Yes, we do, and they're all from Luke Jackinetti. <laughs> Luke Man. Giaconetti had something to say. Let's see here. Our good friend Luke Jackinetti. I might I might add fellow demonzo Corps employee. <laughs> or indentured servant—it's whatever you really want to say.
0: Is this first one the one that you wanted me specifically to read? Because there was one no, where you third said, he one. Went,
1: "Oh, okay, the third one—the last one will do." So you do this one; I'll do the next one because he's calling me out about something, <laughs> and then—and uh, then you can. So,
0: all right. So this one is entitled simply Episode 47 Feedback. He says, hey, dudes, on Episode 47, you guys read an email from Jose A. Rivera where he complained about Infinite Crisis, saying that it was, quote, unquote, lazy writing because of the use of a deus (sighs) Deus Deus ex machina (laughs) to undo Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh Uh-huh. Saying that Infinite Crisis uses a Deus S. Machina gimmick as opposed to Crisis on Infinite Earths is absolute nonsense. Crisis on Infinite Earths is the ultimate Deus S. Machina story, and the monitor and anti-monitor are, are total. Stop using this term! He says it again. <laughs> Deus S. Machina characters. Splitting worlds apart is a Deus S. Machina, but merging them together is not? I see. The major difference between the two stories is that Crisis on Infinite Earths came out in the '80s, and Infinite Crisis came out in the aughts, Or, however, I hate that term. Actually, I shouldn't have said that. How? What is the technical term for the zeros? '00s. Okay, I just I hate that expression.
1: <laughs> I do too, but it's the only one that I know.
0: He <laughs> <laughs> says, so, "So you guys, uh, so you guys, your age. So guys, your age, rather." ate up Crisis on Infinite Earths because it was targeted at you and your fellow fanboys, whereas those who dug Infinite Crisis were in the prime of their comics reading in the aughts. I was a little kid when Crisis on Infinite Earths came out, so I have no nostalgia factor for the story at all. Infinite Crisis came out when I was just out of college and was a big, epic, slam-bang story uh, which kicked a lot of butt and still holds up when I reread it. I have no problem... Uh, have no problem with Crisis on Infinite Earths at all. It's a great story, easily one of the best superhero stories of all time. But saying that it doesn't utilize a deus mocking a plot device to drive some editorially mandated line-wide, uh, line-wide reworking doesn't make any sense to me. I have no opinion on One More Day as I have never read the story, although I agree with Scott that Spider-Man making a uh, deal with the devil is a disgrace. Thank you. Um... Do we want to address any of that before we go on
1: to the rest of the... Uh, he, makes a, he makes a really good point. I mean, I, I enjoyed Infinite Crisis when it was coming out. Uh, I have found that I don't like to reread it so much as re-listen to the graphic audio version, uh, which really brings that storyline. But they were both very... I was totally drinking the DC Kool-Aid leading up to Infinite Crisis. I ate up all of the miniseries, the specials, you know i i was my head was really deep into the dcu at the time so i i, I think they both served they both served a similar a similar end uh, even though the ends themselves were different they they were kind of similar in scope so i um i think he's got a point okay
0: um for me it it just simply comes down to this is i i do think that in a lot of ways infinite crisis was lazy writing because i think it was trying to ride the coattails of crisis on infinite uh, earths which you know is the to me anyway the ultimate superhero story you know it's 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 it is to me the best superhero story um you know, it's the it's the end of the world. You know, and it's I don't think it's ever been done again quite the same way or quite as as well. An infinite crisis suckered me in, and I say suckered purposely. I felt suckered by that because it was very much advertised and very much touted as you know this big sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. And in a lot of ways, all that story really did was piss on Crisis on Infinite Earths. It it took a lot of the same characters and a lot of the same concepts and just kind of went in that Jeff Johns dark route. And I don't really agree with a lot of the decisions and a lot of the things that were done in it. Most of all, I don't like that it took heroes from that story. People that were most definitely heroes that sacrificed much you know, in the original Crisis stories and made them villains in the Infinite Crisis story for seemingly no reason whatsoever. That I'll never really forgive him for that. And, you know, I not, I could be wrong. I've been told by some people that they find Crisis very confusing. I don't. I never did. And I was really just getting into comics when Crisis on Infinite Earths came out. So I didn't have some huge you know, backlog of comics that I'd read to be able to understand the story. I just found it easy to follow and easy to understand. Sure, there were characters that I might not have ever seen them before, but I was still able to to follow the story, and I didn't feel like I needed to read every single crossover to follow it and everything. Infinite Crisis, completely the opposite. There are so many panels and pages in that series, I don't know what the hell is going on. And it's made worse by the fact that this was at a time... You know, it's, it's still a fairly modern comic. Comics today don't have footnotes. They don't reference anything else. So there were so many instances in that book that I knew that it was more than likely referencing something that was going on in, say, the pages of, I don't know, Aquaman or something. But because they didn't bother to give me a footnote, I wasn't going to be bothered to go hunt it down and find out. So there are literally entire pages in that series that just make no sense. It feels like a page torn out of another comic and put into that that comic. That to me, that's the very definition of lazy writing. When you can't even be bothered to tell me what it is you're referencing so that I can follow your story, yeah, that's pretty lazy. So as far as the whole deus es machina thing, I don't know. I'll have to confess. I guess I just don't really understand that term enough to know what you think the, the deus es machina is in Crisis on Infinite Earths, because if I am interpreting your letter right, what you're saying is that the Monitor and the Anti-Monitor are just kind of the the invention for the sake of getting that story to where it needs to go. I'll sort of agree with you, and I'll sort of disagree with you, because Crisis on Infinite Earths, again, references so much stuff that had already been established in... The DC Universe, you know, going all the way back to Green Lantern number 50 with Krona and Krona trying to look back at the origins of the universe and actually creating the multiverse by doing that, that sort of thing. Yeah, this might be the first time we're seeing the monitor and the anti-monitor. So, yeah, I guess by definition they are deus es machina. Still, this was a story that I felt was already in motion, that it had been building. I mean, by the time Crisis came along and I was reading it, I very much felt and bought into the concept that everything in the DC universe had always been building to this point anyway. You know, and that's one of the reasons that story really works for me whereas Infinite Crisis completely the opposite. By the time Infinite Crisis came along, it didn't feel like it was the natural progression of that universe. It felt like it was a point that the the writers had reached where it was time to okay, time to reboot because we've kind of written ourselves into corners. Again, lazy writing. So it pains me when people will talk about these two series in the same breath and with the same enthusiasm as if they stand toe-to-toe with each other because they don't. Infinite Crisis stands nowhere near Crisis on Infinite Earths. Crisis on Infinite Earths is the pinnacle of superhero comics, whereas Infinite Crisis is just kind of a crummy story that was riding the coattails and, and trying to recapture something that it ultimately completely failed to do other than just screwing up continuity for the sake of screwing up continuity whereas crisis i felt was trying to fix something maybe it wasn't completely successful but it was an attempt so anyway i'll get out of myself soap, soapbox about that but i hope that explains a little bit of how i feel about you know the differences between the two of them anyways <laughs> Actually, that's the very next word in his letter. Anyways, he says Also, on episode 47, you guys mentioned that Marvel was better at licensed comics than DC, and I agree with this. I don't know about Star Wars, never read it, but the two other prime examples of them, G.I. Joe and Transformers, got a major benefit from having a very strong creative voice for the entire runs. I am pretty sure there was exactly one issue of G.I. Joe not written by Larry Hama. Uh, who also essentially created all of the characters and created the entire premise word. This includes the special mission series and specials as well. So the book was insanely consistent from the narrative standpoint.
1: Yes, it was
0: in the case of transformers. The first author was Bob buddy buddy Anski, who worked with Hasbro to create the characters and premise. The second half of the series was written by Simon Furman, who had written the UK Transformers stories for years and years. So the two of them created the entire Transformers universe. These strong baselines allowed for these books to run for as long as they did and be as beloved as they are now to the point that the original Marvel continuity is still being used on one of IDW's G.I. Joe books with a push being made to do the same for Transformers. So that's actually pretty cool. Yep. Yeah. See, I, I don't know. I really don't know much about either one of them.
1: I I have never read many. I've read like the first twenty five issues of Transformers and, and liked some of them, didn't like others. Uh, GI Joe I've read pretty much a hundred issues of, uh, and it just got better and better and better and better and then kind of meh and then better. And I really need to at some point pick up the the trades. Because Marvel started reprinting them back in 2001, but they only got as far as 50 issues worth in trade paperback. And uh, IDW has picked up that ball and ran with it. So now I've got to make the decision whether or not I want to sell the two Marvel ones I have and have all the IDW ones just so that my bookshelf looks good. These are things I consider. (laughs) I mean, anal retentive is hyphenated. But yeah, I mean, Luke's, Luke's absolutely right. Larry Hama's vision of what that group should be and who those characters were completely changed my perception of G.I. Joe when I finally got to read it when I was like 23 years old uh, back in like 1999. Uh, it doesn't make me hate the animated series from the 80s because that's such an integral part of my childhood uh, that I can't really not like it but it made me like Hama's vision of what G.I. Joe should be over what the animated people did with it. So,
0: I think you could also throw uh, Rom Space Knight into that argument as well, mm-hmm. because if I'm not mistaken, didn't Bill Mantlo write every issue of that series? I believe he did. You're He's, absolutely uh, right. I'm pre- pretty sure he did. I know that uh, Sal Buscema drew most of it, but I know that he didn't do all of it, because at least one issue, I want to say it might have been number six, 74 or 75 was actually a collaboration between Steve Ditko and John Byrne. Um,
1: That's two really bizarre styles. Being yes, it together. is. Yeah,
0: yeah, very much so.
1: Uh,
0: he wraps up his letter by saying, I have been enjoying the coverage on Crisis on Earth Prime. Never read it since it's never been reprinted, but it sounds like a fun story. I have the first volume... Of Crisis on Multiple Earths on my trade paperback queue, and I am looking forward to it. I have toyed with collecting All Star Squadron just because Commander Steel is a great character, but I don't need another series to collect right now. Keep up the good work, dudes. And that's from Luke Giaconetti. Thank you very much, Luke. You uh you inspired some good conversation
1: with that uh, with that letter. Well Luke returned <laughs> a few days later. With the, uh, to call me out on something. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. Uh, I, I'm actually going to argue with him a bit on this, but let's get into it. It says Martian Manhunter killed off panel. Reason the discussion of the Big Three, Big Four, Magnificent Seven in episode number 48. Michael, that would be me. You claimed that Grant Morrison killed the Martian Manhunter off panel. Not to sound direct, but huh? Libra impaled him through the chest with a flaming spear on a spread page. You don't get more on-panel than that. At the time Final Crisis No. 1 came out, it was criticized for being too graphic. Okay, let's deal with that first. I say off-panel, and I think I'm using the wrong term. I have a lot of love, affection, and respect for the Martian Manhunter. And... Really, his death seemed very throwaway to me Oh in yeah. the two to three times that I've read Final Crisis. Uh, I don't hate Final Crisis. Um, oh, that's all right. I'll hate it for you. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I, 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 I don't despise it, because when I finally sat down and read the whole thing at once, I got where Morrison was coming from. And I think that the main problem with Final Crisis is that Grant Morrison wanted to tell this story and DC said okay we'll turn that into a big event and it really wasn't supposed to be a big event it was supposed to be an epic story but it would be like DC taking whatever happened to the man of tomorrow and turning it into a company wide event you know it was supposed to be this very specific thing and it doesn't really work when you're when you're marketing it and there was all that lateness and stuff the other problem I had with him killing Martian Manhunter, and I don't know if I've ever really gone, out, gone into this or not, is there was a, a time where Wizard Magazine would produce specials based on like a hit thing going on at the time. Uh, they had an X-Men special. They had a Heroes Return special where they would interview all the creators and give you a preview. And they did two JLA specials. Uh, They also did a pretty cool Batman and Superman one. But in one of the JLA specials, I forget which one it was, Grant Morrison pretty much intimated that he thought that the reason why Martian Manhunter really didn't get a fair shake was essentially racism. Not like bad racism where it's like, well, people, you know, know, you're bad for not liking the Martian Manhunter because he's green, but more in characters who are alien-looking and, and, and of a different skin color don't get as fair a shake in the comic book marketplace as Superman or Batman. Um, I'm not going to argue whether or not that's true. I'm saying that to say this, as my good friend Derek Ferguson would say. It seems really sucky, to use a really intellectual term there, and it kind of pissed me off that Morrison made this great impassioned uh, thing for Martian Manhunter and then kind of cast him off in this story. And the, the Requiem issue was pretty good. Had one of the funnier lines where Superman said, we we pray for a speedy uh, resurrection. <laughs> Letting you know that even the DC Comics characters know that they're not going to stay dead. Um And it just kind of bugged me. So I think that's why I say off-panel is because it wasn't a significant death for me in the series. It was throwaway, yeah. So um, whether or not Luke disagrees with me, I'm actually interested. Because the great thing about Luke is that he'll sit here and argue with us, but I never get a a sense that it's from a I'm-trying-to-prove-you-wrong type of thing. He's just making an argument for the other side that he agrees with, and I think it brings up some good debate. So... Plus, Luke's a cool guy. El Jacone. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and Scott saying that the DCU should be Superman and the others, I really wish I could say I was surprised by that. I won't get into the whole Flash debate because I've already pointed out how one of the hosts of the show was wrong in this email, and he gives us a little winky sign, Luke. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> hold hold that thought and get to the next email okay all right
0: next one also from luke jack and eddie episode 51 feedback he says guys this email is going to sound more annoyed than i actually am i admit that i was very ticked when i first wrote it uh but i have taken a few deep breaths and feel somewhat better now then the seemingly constant bashing of hawkman is getting old guys what brought this email on was the email from Jose Rivera. You guys read in episode fifty-one the Hawk stories, which Jose refers to. That is, that Hawkman stories were constantly about the reincarn- reincarnation of him and Hawk Girl in their eventual deaths by Hathset, was, was established in the late twentieth century by James Robinson and Jeff Johns. They were ahem decade, or excuse me, there were rather ahem. Decades of Hawkman stories, which had nothing to do with the reincarnation angle, and this is me speaking as the guy who runs a Hawkman blog, which is being Carter Hall, all one word, beingcarterhall.blogspot.com, and is within spitting distance of completing his run of every Hawkman solo story in one format or another. Go ahead and read Showcase Presents Hawkman Volume One and Volume Two, which collects the entire Silver Age run of Hawkman, and count how many times the reincarnation is mentioned. It's not mentioned a single time. If you want to talk Golden Age, uh, get the Golden Age Hawkman Archives Volume 1 and count how many times the angle is mentioned, and it's one time. In Flash Comics number 1, the first appearance of the character. Check out Hawkman Volume 2, which spun out of the uh, Shadow War of Hawkman, no reincarnation, or Hawkworld, and then all uh, all of Volume 3, the one which came out around the time of Zero Hour, No Reincarnation. Really beating that horse, huh? It was only in Volume 4, of the Robinson, John stuff, followed by Palmiotti and Gray, that Reincarnation becomes so central to the story. Hawkman is lame? Seriously, Scott? You're going to play this card by saying he's a guy with wings who flies. Uh, you have simply demonstrated that you have not read nearly enough of the character's adventures. Of course, you uh, also have previously said that the Flash is the guy who runs fast, as well as bash Aquaman and Green Lantern, so it would seem that most uh, any Justice Leaguer whose name is not Superman is automatically lame to you. See, that's, that's not true. That's not true at all. I think, actually, I've gone on at great lengths to defend Aquaman who I constantly hear other people call out as uh, being super lame. I don't think Aquaman is. I think the problem with Aquaman, and, and you know, I don't even know if I should go back into this, because I'm sure that we've done at least a couple of different episodes going on and on about Aquaman. But in short, it comes down to you just have to find the right angle with these guys. That's my problem with Hawkman and, uh, and The Flash, is that I've never really found an angle with those guys that worked for me. I mean, I'm not trying to, and I think I've said this before, that I'm not trying to piss on anybody else's parade. I mean, if you like those guys, hey, more power to you. I'm just telling you, for me personally, um, I loved the Palmiotti and Gray stuff with Hawkman because for the first time in my experience, they finally took the guy and made him not lame. Um he was just he suddenly he was exciting to me. I really liked the stuff that they were doing with him, and I was very surprised by it because he was a character I just didn 't get into before. I, he was just wasn 't interesting to me. I wish somebody could do that same sort of thing with the flash to this very day i i 'm just not excited about the flash. I loved the t v show because it it was different, you know, and it was something uh i don 't know just it was exciting to me. I really enjoyed the t v show and you know, if there was a comic series of The Flash that somebody that could point me to that was much more like that, then, you know, I might enjoy it. I liked the early issues of The Flash right after Crisis on Infinite Earths, where it was Wally West kind of, you know, finding his feet as, you know, going from Kid Flash to The Flash. And that was written by, what was it, Mike Barron, I think.
1: Yeah, I liked for the that first stuff. 15 or 16 issues. Yeah,
0: I liked that quite a bit. But eventually, even that sort of petered out because. The the writer that took over after him, Mesner Lobes, I think, yep. got into just some really wacky stuff that just... I, I understand other people really like... I think you really like that stuff, don't you, Mike? I love it. Absolutely See, love it. It was just a little too too weird and a little bit too much like the stuff that I remembered pre-Crisis that... that um, I forget who the writer was, but like Carmine Infantino was drawing it. You know, just Theory a lot Bates. of... Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff with uh, like the Pied Piper and those really goofy characters that I just never really just never really warm to them. So, like I said, I'm not trying to put anybody. To, if you like Hawkman, hey, more power to you. I, I you know, I, I respect your passion for it. And, you know, you're definitely very excited about it. And some of the stuff you talks about sounds exciting. And I like that. I like when people can go, "No, you know, if you if you don't like this guy, you need to check out this story." You know, I like when people are able to do that because I might actually end up finding something I wasn't aware of before that can change my mind. And, you know, so I wasn't trying to bust, you know, overly much on you know, on these characters. However, I don't know. I will defend my original position that Hawkman in this era in this incarnation And in this series, uh, All-Star Squadron, I find him, frankly, I find him one of the most boring characters in the whole book. He's just, he's so one-dimensional. I mean, would you agree with that, Mike? Or do you, what do you think of Hawkman in this series?
1: um, I'm not a big fan of him. But that's... See, my perception of Hawkman in this series is really covered by my perception of Hawkman in Infinity Incorporated, where he comes off as a big old douchebag. And that's not saying the character is lame. It's just the way he was presented, or at least my memories of reading that. Because sometimes you can read something, get, get, get an opinion stuck in your head, and suddenly that's how the character was throughout the entire, you know, the entire freaking um run of the book and sometimes that's just not true it's just my perception of it is so overwhelming that it kind of colors everything else right but he was kind of a big jerk at the beginning of that so that's kind of how i see roy thomas's take on the characters that he's a big jerk even though he really doesn't act like a big jerk i think the other problem was the um the fact that the one big hawkman centric story from this series is one of my least favorite stories of the series you know the whole half set alien coming to earth you will be assimilated you all are screwing up so we're going to we're going to change that out that i think that kind of colors uh colors my perception of it as well so it's really hard to say because i don't know what is me hating one story so I don't like the character in the entire series or me actually giving him a, 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 a fair shot. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense at all. Because sometimes I ramble. <laughs> Well, his,
0: Mama. you know, he continues in this, and his next line kind of bugs me because he says, Whether you like Hawkman or not is irrelevant to me. And he has a quote here a song is a song. You either dig it or you don't. Well, obviously, it is relevant to you, or you wouldn't have bothered to write in. You know, you wouldn't be this impassioned about it and everything. So obviously, what we've said has bothered you, and it is relevant to you. But he continues, he says, But I still felt the need to object to this mutual bashing society as you have going on here. Okay. <sighs> you know, we were We were kidding largely, I mean, I find it humorous, and I expect that other listeners find it humorous when you 're able to single out one character and kind of pick on them a little bit i frankly i'm surprised that we have not heard from the uh dr midnight admiration society yet because i'm constantly ragging on dr midnight you know does it mean that i hate the character and i think he's worthless and blah 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 no i just i i'm amused by him because the poor guy you know he he's one of the you know he, he's a poor man's batman in a lot of ways he's got no superpowers or anything he's a self-made superhero but then he's got the whole blind in the daylight thing working against him, too. So a lot of the situations he finds himself in, like driving a flying car, are patently ridiculous. And so I like to make fun of that because it's funny, you know? But does that mean that I'm I'm dissing the character and I've got no love for him? Not at all. I think Dr. Midnight's actually a pretty cool character. So, you know... <sighs> I don't know what to say. I was tempted to say lighten up, but when people tell me to lighten up, it typically pisses me off. So I won't say lighten up. But understand that we 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 poke fun because we love. You know what I mean? Uh, anyway, he's wrapping this up saying, anyway... I would like to read along with the issues you guys are talking about, but I have never seen an issue of All-Star Squadron in a discount bin up here, and I am not paying premium prices for a book which seems to run very hot and cold if your descriptions of them are any indication. Listening to your show does make me yearn for a DC Comics uh, which doesn't feel so handcuffed by the idea that its readers are too dense to figure things out. If little kids in the 1950s could figure out the concept of an infinite number of alternate Earths to have adventures on then the uh teen and older readers today should be able to figure it out too thanks luke and uh i hope we have not made the impression that all-star squadron is not worth hunting down and and reading just because we've had you know admittedly a couple of issues that were you know less than stellar because taken as a whole the series is fantastic and one of the best books to come out of dc comics in the 1980s i firmly believe that and hold to that so it's just that you know up till now up to this point that we're at right now yeah it could be a little spotty in places but from here on out you know to my memory at least and i think uh mike has a much better grasp and a much better memory for this than i do but to my memory from here on out it's it's a pretty damn solid series
1: yep yeah very much so
0: I mean, I've read uh, I've read the next two or three issues already. You know, beyond the issue we just covered tonight, and uh, I can tell you, it's it's some damn good stuff. So you're in you're in for a good ride. Um, and on that note, you know, I'll extend this offer to Luke and to everyone else. I do see All Star Squadron in discount bins all the damn time, and I'm always. I think you and I have talked about this before, Mike. You know where, where you see something in a discount bin that just breaks your heart, and you, and you don't pick it up because you don't need it. You know, you've already got it for yeah. yourself, but you see it there, and you're you're tempted to because you know somebody out there in the world could could love this comic. You know what I mean? It's like seeing a a lost kitten. You know, you you want to take it in and and make sure it gets a home. You know, I feel the same way about great comics that I see in the discount bin. I, I want to take them in so that I can make sure they get a good home. So if there are people interested out there that are looking for, you know, issues of All Star or, you know, Infinity Inc when we get to it or whatever, um, you know, let me know. And, you know, so long as somebody will end up taking them off my hands and, and reimburse me, you know, I'll be happy to pick them up. You know what I mean? If I had the extra money to just pick them up and end up giving them away or whatever, I would do that. But I I can't get into that because that's that's a, I'm setting myself up for worse poverty than I'm I'm already in. You know what I mean? But I will be happy to pick them up if if enough people out there say, oh yeah, pick that shit up and uh, you know yeah, let me know what issues and I'll take them off your hands or whatever. You know if we if we get that uh, enough interest in that, then yeah, I'll I'll scoop those up when I see them because I do. Uh, encounter those issues quite frequently. What do
1: you think, Mike? I think that's an episode.
0: All right. That sounds good to me. Sadly, this uh, issue of All Star Squadron number 20 has never been reprinted. But we're
1: holding out hope. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk
0: about random back issues from the past. You can find that at
1: www2 com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts
0: that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Long Box, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com.
1: Scott and I have gigantic egos. We love to hear from the listeners.
0: You can reach the show by writing to
1: talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and come back next week for another installment of The Tales of the Justice Society of America.
0: Remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory.